In 2017, I had it all, but it was a world built on a secret that I didn't want to deal with and could no longer contain. And that's when it all came crashing down. You can't stay in the closet when the floor gives way. This is Falling Out. Welcome to this episode of Falling Out. I'm your host, Brian Kennedy. Today, our guest is Naomi Green. Naomi Green is a black trans woman with an established history and reputation of advocating and serving trans people of color. Her personal advocacy work began in 2004 while a student at Jackson State University as a member of the ballroom community. She began her professional advocacy work as a program manager at Abounding Prosperity, Inc. in 2019, where she developed a holistic program for transgender women of color. Transparency that included HIV prevention services such as PrEP and PEP, HIV and STI testing and treatment, hormone replacement therapy, counseling services, support groups, name and gender marker changes, and leadership development. She also developed a program for black, gay, bi, queer, and trans men that adopted the same holistic approach to HIV prevention as well. Currently, Naomi advocates through her work with organizations who provide funding by making sure that communities most marginalized, resource-deprived, and in much need, such as transgender people of color, are represented and receive prioritization in funding allocations. She is the vice chair of allocations committee of the Ryan White Planning Council of the Dallas area, where she ensures that federal Ryan White funds are being allocated to service categories that are of most need for BIPOC and LGBTQ plus living with HIV and AIDS. She also serves on the board for Texas Pride Impact Funds, Texas's leading progressive community foundation focused on the needs of the LGBTQ community in the state. There, she helps to ensure the grant application and grant selection process are equitable and inclusive of BIPOC and trans organizations, as well as making sure grant funds are addressing the most pressing needs of these communities throughout the state. She also serves on the board for Black Ladies in Public Health, a network of over 10,000 black women working in various fields and roles within the public health spectrum and providing network opportunities, job leads, internships, and more in an effort to prioritize the career advancement and impact of black women working in the public health arena. Her other work includes public speaking, community organizing, mentoring, job placement for black trans women, and educating through speaking on panels at conferences and universities throughout the state and country. As her primary employment, Naomi works as a business and development consultant for Crush Limits, an HR firm with a global reach that provides CHRO, on-demand HR, and knowledge and learning services to large corporations, big tech companies, and individuals around the world. She also serves as an adjunct professor of marketing for Lone Star College. Her primary goal is is to change one heart and one mind at a time in an effort to uplift and elevate BIPOC communities, especially those at the intersection of LGBTQ+, particularly transgender women of color. Please welcome to the show this force of a person, this incredible advocate, the one and only Naomi Green. Naomi, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, wow, what a bio. As I was going through that, I was like, is there anything you don't do or (laughs) haven't accomplished at this point in your life? It's a mouthful, I will say. Um, (laughs) I try to pare it down and and find ways to shorten it, but it's extremely difficult. I've done a lot in a little bit of time. so. Yeah, well, and it's also important. I mean, I, I would, if I, sometimes I look through the bios too and think about shortening them, but... 
I'm like, there's nothing in there that I could take away because it's all so important. Yeah. Um, I guess we want to start today with just a little bit of your story. Our, our listeners really like to hear where people come from. I think it's important in our community as well to kind of get a sense of, you know, what challenges did you overcome? Because I may be going through those challenges right now and it gives me hope. Yeah. And so you have a fascinating story. I just want you, you can start at the beginning. Uh, you can start wherever in your journey you want to do. But I, I want to especially hear a little bit about the coming out process and, and, and coming into your own identity and get a sense of that. So, you know, I, I'm here to listen. I'm excited about today and, and to hear your story. Um, we've interacted a little bit in some different uh, work type settings but I don't know the real personal story behind Naomi Green. So I just want to give you the floor and let you go. So oh. tell me a little bit about you. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here, Brian. Um, hopefully we have a few hours if you're asking me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm a small town gal, you know, in a big city now. Um, originally from Grenada, Mississippi. Most people have probably never heard of it. Uh, very, very, very small uh, kind of rural town halfway between Memphis and Jackson, Mississippi, off of I-55. Uh, born there, you know, raised, you know, a few years during my childhood there. Moved around quite a bit with my mom uh, growing up. But most of my early years, um, up until middle school, I would say, were in Decatur, Illinois, another small town in central Illinois, about 40 minutes from the capital of Springfield. Um Really grew up around a lot of uh, white people, you know, excuse my language, but, you know, that was my experience growing up primarily, uh, very conservative town, you know, uh, going to school, being one of only three black kids in my honors classes and things of that nature. So I started to kind of learn a lot of things early. I didn't at those ages realize some of the things that I was dealing with. Um being excluded from some spaces, you know, being one of the only friends not invited to people's houses and things of that nature. You know, those kinds of things didn't really um, dawn on me at that age that, oh, they probably didn't want you there because of the color of your skin, right? So I was really oblivious to a lot of things uh, growing up kind of sheltered. And then once I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, which is in West Michigan, about two hours away from Chicago, about two hours from Detroit. Um, it's, again, a small city, very conservative as well. Um, it's about 80% white, 20% uh, everything else, and that's between Hispanic, Black, and other races. Um, that was, for me, kind of where I was really starting to come more into my own identity, just really learning more about myself, being able to experience a little bit more being around, you know, more black people, you know, meeting friends who were black and queer and, you know, things of that nature. And so my horizons started to expand. And so my lived experiences started to expand, you know, I was still who I was, you know, playing sports and in choir and show choir and band and, you know, cheerleading and dancing and all of those different things. Um, you know, but I really started to learn more about the LGBTQ plus community. My knowledge started to really expand. I started to, you know, feel more comfortable um, expressing and being myself. You know, I didn't know what trans was at that time. You know, growing up 
in small towns and being sheltered. And this was before Google and, you know, all of those things were a thing. I mean, we were still on like AOL dial up, right. And some of those little small chat rooms. And so I didn't know as much as, you know, I do now, of course. Um, so I identified as what I thought I was at the time, which was just a gay boy. Right. And, um, the more I started to meet other people who I thought were like me, you know, who were queer and who were black and, you know, identified as like gay, you know, I started to realize that I was not even like them and I was different from them. Right. And it was like, we, we are similar, but we're not the same. Right. Can I, let me ask a question here because I want to counter some of the things that I've heard recently, Mm -hmm. not, not, believe, but that I've heard from other people. Mm-hmm. One of the, the arguments, because you're dealing with a lot of in- intersectionality there. Yeah. Uh, the fact of being black, being transgender, being queer, you know, and, and also touring these three very conservative areas yeah. in your lifetime in different regions of our country. But what I've heard people make comments about is the influence of social media, of media, of, you know, seeing more queer people is what's causing more queer people to appear, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a pastor friend the other day, and and his challenge was, well, you know, I, I understand the the sexuality piece of gay versus straight. He said, but you know, I feel like a lo- like some of these bills in Texas that are going through are important because kids are being influenced by social media, mm-hmm. and that's why they're coming out as trans before they really have the knowledge. Mm-hmm. I know that's not true, mm-hmm. um, but I want you to speak to our audience because we do have a wide audience of people who some sometimes don't understand that process. Um, you know, I know the Missouri bill that passed here a, a few months ago included that for trans people to receive gender affirming care, they had to be able to prove after 18 months of therapy that they were not influenced by social media, which mm. is a ridiculous piece yeah, of very. that bill. But for you, I mean, you know, I think of this often, even with myself, I I didn't have exposure to those things. And yet here I am. Yeah. So for you, like when you talk about, I noticed something different about me, Mm -hmm. what was that? Can you kind of describe that in words that help people understand what that journey's like? I know that's a loaded question, but I think it's an important question. Yeah, no, um, for me, it was early age. I mean, it was early age. I knew that I was different. I knew that there was something different about me. Um, before I knew anything about, you know, the old terms of what things were called, um, prior to, you know, more of these inclusive words. Now I just thought I was like born in the wrong body, you know? And I thought that at a very, very early age, I mean, growing up, I didn't have any, uh, one around me that was an influence or anyone that I could look up to or um, that I could see who was who was openly gay or who was trans or any of those things. I just knew what I was from my own feelings and, you know, my brain and my heart and my soul and my body um, telling me, you know, things about myself. You know, I remember being, you know, five, six years old in Decatur, Illinois, in Longview Housing Authority with, you know, my cousins uh, one was a boy and one was a girl and we were all around the same age within a year and a half of each other. And I remember, you know, playing and I just shared more commonality with my cousin, Jessica, you know, than, than I did my boy cousin. 
And, you know, I enjoyed spending more time with her and I felt like her and I were more similar and shared more experiences and had the same soul. And, you know, I would try to, you know, wonder like, why were we different? You know, I literally can remember wondering like, why are we so different? And I was thinking that it was just our body parts. And so I remember trying to like push my stuff on the inside and thinking that that would make me and her the same because that was visibly for me. The only thing that I could tell that made us different was just our sex organs. But aside from that, her and I were like just alike and we enjoyed all of the same things and, you know, liked the same things and shared the same identities and, you know, all of those things. And this was at five and six years old. And, you know, um, my cousin, you know, who grew up with me and her as well, he's not gay, you know, he's not trans, he's not any of those things. You know, my, you know, female cousin, she's not gay, she's not trans, she's not a lesbian, you know, none of those things. But this was who I was, you know, um, I was not touched or, you know, any of those types of things. Um, I was not around anyone you know, with those, you know, beliefs or those identities or those lived experiences. But this was what I felt at that early of an age. And so I knew very early on and I would, you know, try to seek out information once I got to an age that was old enough to figure out like what this was. And I remember watching TV um, over at my grandparents' houses one day and I saw a show about intersex people. And at the time they were referred to as hermaphrodites. Um, and I remember watching a show and learning because I watched a lot of Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, you know, National Geographic and things of that nature, biography when that channel finally came out. I remember watching a lot of that. It might have been Discovery or something. I was watching a show and they started talking about intersex people. And I was like, well, maybe that's what it is. You know, maybe, you know, maybe I wasn't born in the wrong body. Maybe I was born with both of these, you know, sex organs and my parents chose for me to be a boy because it was easier. And, you know, with intersex people, I learned that, you know, at that time, oftentimes the doctors would make parents choose, right? Which sex, you know, do you want your child to be in? It was always easier to start with being a boy and if they needed to reverse it, if the child grew up and, and felt like they were supposed to be female, it was easier to, at that time, the saying that was on the show was it was easier to, um, you know, dig a hole than to build a pole. Um, that was literally the language that was used. And so I was like, well, maybe that's what happened. And I tried to, you know, engage my grandmother actually at the time in a conversation. And this is when I was still in Decatur um, at probably maybe 12 or something like that. And I was like, you know, asking grandma, you know, what's, what's that, that line that runs between my legs, you know, like from my butt up to, you know, and she was like, what you talking about? And I was like, it's like a line or something. I don't know. It looks like maybe something's been sewn up or something. And she was like, are you talking about your varicose vein? And I was like, maybe. And she was like, is it the thing? And I was like, yeah, that thing. She was like, no, that's what. And I was like, oh, I didn't know if maybe, you know, like I got sewn up right there or something at birth. You know, I was really trying to like find out, right? I mean, at an early age, I was trying to find out why I was different and why I was, you know, in the body and had the organs that I had because I knew that it wasn't right. Right. I knew that something wasn't matching up for me. And so, um, you know, like I said, when I got to high school and started to meet different people that I thought were, you know, gay like me, because that's what I thought I was, because that was the only term that I heard, you know, 
I was like, okay. But then I started to realize, no, that's not it. You know, we're, we're very similar, but we're different. You know, we're a lot different because they don't feel like they're supposed to be like, I feel like I'm supposed to be right. Like they don't feel like they're in the wrong body or any of those things. And so, um, I mean, even some of the things that we like to do, it just, we're a lot different and, and don't mistake. I mean, though I, you know, felt like I did again, I played all the sports, you know, like I still did all the things because my mom was athletic. My dad was athletic. My grandmother and grandfather were athletic. So I still shared all of those things, you know, having the beliefs and the feelings and things that I did, um, didn't come from not doing things. I played basketball, football, baseball. I ran track. I was a, a track, you know, state, uh, placer, finisher, all of those different things. But I also, when I got to high school, started playing and, and doing cheerleading, was in dance, was in show choir, choir, you know, all of those things as well. So, I mean, I had a full experience, you know, of, of activities, sports, um, all of those things, you know, I had my father in my life. My grandfather was a huge influence on me growing up, um, all of those things. And so this was just who I was and who I felt like. And then when I went to Jackson State in Jackson, Mississippi, um, for me, then it was like the aha, because I started to gain exposure to even more people. And I remember being on campus and I saw like my first trans person, like my spring break, um, you know, going back to Michigan, I was picking up one of my um, older friends, you know, friends who lived in Jackson at the time, and they were going up to visit for uh, spring break and going to spend their spring break in Michigan. And they were riding with me and one of them was trans and I didn't know, but when I saw her and I found out that she was trans, I was like a light bulb, you know, went off and it was like, oh my gosh, you know, because for me, I always thought I was going to like go to sleep and, you know, God was going to perform this miracle and I was going to wake up a woman, right? I was going to wake up in a different body. That's how I thought that it was going to happen. Like I didn't know, but I always visioned myself and pictured myself at a very young age growing up and being a grown woman. That was my vision of what my future looked like for me. That's what I thought. I just didn't know how it was going to happen because again, this was before the, the age of the internet and being able to look up all this stuff online and see all these different, you know, resources that are available now. I just thought I was going to be like the first modern miracle that God was going to perform and I was going to go to sleep one way and wake up another. That's what I thought. Yeah. And then seeing her, it was a realization that that's probably not how it's going to happen. And you know, that, um, I would take a different path, but it was possible for me to look like and live like what I felt like I was supposed to. And so, you know, that's really where my journey started. Once I joined the ballroom scene, um, back in, you know, 2003, 2004, and, you know, got involved in that and being in Jackson started to see like pageant shows and different things like that with like trans women performing and, you know, seeing all of these different things. It was like, even then, this is not what I'm going to do, right? Like, I'm not going to, you know, do some of these procedures and home procedures and silicone injections and things of that nature, because I understand that's not healthy and, you know, all of these things. So that's not the route that is going to be taken. But then, you know, once I became like a house mother and, you know, I had house children in my ballroom house who were trans and started to educate me and tell me about hormones and things of that nature, I was like, oh, 
So that's how it's going to happen. And so that was honestly for me, my gateway to my transition was, you know, being involved in the ballroom scene in my 20s. I didn't transition until after I graduated from college. Um, and that was a very conscious decision just because I did know, again, still being in Mississippi in college at the time, what I would have to deal with if I chose to make the decision to transition while I was in school, because I ended up meeting someone on campus or, or learning of someone on campus, I should say, who was trans. And I remember, you know, seeing how they had to traverse that situation. Um, I ended up meeting her later, 2019, years later, you know, her name is um, D styles, Diamond Collier. Um, she was that woman on campus, that trans woman on campus. And I remember, you know, hearing all the whispers, seeing all the stares, hearing all the chatter and all of the different things that happened. Um, you know, and that's her experience to tell, but just from my view, seeing her from the outside looking, um, and, you know, I saw some of the things that I felt like, you know, maybe she had to go through and it wasn't what I wanted my experience to be because I didn't want anything to take away from my education, you know, from, from being able to attain my degree and all of those, I didn't need all of those, uh, distractions and, you know, possibly discrimination and things like that, which is also why after I started to transition, I wasn't open, you know, I wasn't openly trans, you know, this was a different time in the early two thousands, um, you know, I transitioned at work. I was fortunate and lucky enough to have a job um, working at a company in a call center. And, you know, they, one day when I went to them and, and told them, you know, I've been on hormones, I've been doing this, you know, because people started to question and ask, was I transitioning? And it was a word that I didn't even know, you know, but my roommate at the time, who was a black gay man, came to me one night and he told me, you know, girl, people starting to ask, you know, are they transitioning? Are they transitioning? And I was like, what is, what is that? What is transitioning? You know, are you becoming a femme queen? That was the, the word, you know, ballroom term that was used. And I was like, oh, are they? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, I guess I need to go ahead and just make that jump, you know, now, um, because at that time, I mean, I was only presenting as male at work. That was it, you know, because I didn't want to have to deal with the hassle and, you know, possible discrimination and backlash and all those things. I was only presenting male at work and literally everything outside of work. It was, I was, I was Naomi, you know, I looked just like I do now, just younger, a little smaller and thinner, um, <laughs> but I looked like I do now. And so I went to HR the next day and told them what was going on. I was already going through, you know, getting my name and gender marker changes and things like that in Michigan. And, um, you know, the HR person was very open and affirming and that was really the start for me. And, you know, I was there for 11 years, moved from there to St. Louis with the, with the company. And, uh, a lot of things happened in St. Louis and, and then, you know, moved to Texas and, you know, my world really changed when I got to Texas, but I started my advocacy work while I was in the ballroom scene, um, you know, even before becoming, you know, a, an avid member in the ballroom scene, I started advocacy work, um, you know, with just social justice issues and things like that, being a college student on, on a college campus. And then, you know, being an advocate for LGBTQ people and showing them, you know, that certain things are possible, you know, you could be a, a worker, you could have a job, you know, you could do these things and don't let people tell you that you can. And, you know, all of those types of things, you can get an education if that's what you want. I had a lot of gay kids, you know, quote unquote, that, um, I was a mentor for and really showed them that, you know, despite what 
society tells you, despite what people tell you, you can be educated, you can be employed, you know, you can have the things that you want and all of those different types of things. And then once I got into the work professionally and really started to learn a lot more about discrimination and transphobia and homophobia and employment and discrimination and discrimination in housing and, you know, all of those different things, I started to really understand more of the barriers that a lot of the people in my community experienced. Yeah. It was a passion for me to speak on their behalf um, as though it was my own experiences because, you know, if one of us are dealing with it, then all of us are dealing with it. That's just my view. Well, and I want to go back to that, that messaging. I think it's really important what you're tapping into, you know, being able to advocate and tell people you can have these things. You know, I, I think that's very common with queer people, especially, you know, depending on the messaging they had as children, you know, kind of covert cultural sexual abuse coming into play. We talk about that in therapy quite a bit. This idea that you can't be mm-hmm. in these spaces. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, even, and this would have been sometime in the 90s, when I came out, my mom and dad were supportive as much as they could be, mm-hmm. but the messaging that I got was gay people are very lonely and mm-hmm. their life is full of disease. Mm-hmm. And and I, I remember thinking, oh, that well, that's my reality. I'm never going to date. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. And I would carry that with me for several decades. And it would even put up walls between relationships I would try to build or this thought that this thing was wrong and I cannot achieve who I was meant to be because of this one thing. Right. And that's a message that a lot of our, our I mean, a lot of kids are getting today, mm-hmm. especially the political messaging that, that's going out. A lot of, uh, you know, queer clients that I work with, that's the messaging they bring into therapy. Yeah. So it's such a, a powerful message to be able to say, no, wait a minute, you can. Yeah. And we can help you connect to that and mm-hmm. get access to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that honestly was a, a motivating factor for me, you know, growing up. Um, because I had in, in one, in one, uh, space, my mother, right. Who's my biggest ally, my biggest supporter always has been, who has always taught me and told me you can, you can, you can, right. You can do whatever you can do this. You can do that. You can, you know, do whatever you want to do before knowing, you know, anything about, you know, me being gay and me being trans and all of those things. Right. But then I have society saying all of these other things, right? Because people in my family, you know, people outside of my family that I was around always tease me for being gay and, you know, all of these different things. And so you always hear these messages. You ain't going to be able to do this. You ain't going to be able to do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. You know, all of that. Um, and so all of these negative connotations that came along with it. And so for me, that was a motivating factor. People telling me that I couldn't do something made me do what they told me I couldn't do. Play football, great at it. Play basketball, great at it. Ran track, played baseball for a number of years. You know, did dancing, did choir, did band, you know, did cheerleading, did all of those things in the classroom, you know, 
achieved a full academic scholarship, you know, to go to college, like all of those things before my transition, right? So even now that, you know, I have transitioned for people to say, oh, you know, you transitioned because you couldn't cut it as a man or because you couldn't, you know, those are even things that you hear sometimes when you're trans. And it's like, well, no, I could, because these are all the things that I did achieve prior to my transition. And since transitioning still going back and getting my MBA and my master's degree and, you know, achieving a lot of other milestones in my life, right? Being able to do all the things that I have, no one can tell me what I can't do. And I feel that I'm a living example for people within my community to show that you can, you know, if you want to do it, you can do it. And so that was the example that I tried to set for anyone that knew me, you know, for anyone that came in contact with me in the ballroom scene is that you can have a job because there are a lot of girls who thought that they couldn't have a job because they had been told that they couldn't work in certain spaces or get a job because they were trans or femme queens. You know, those were the terms in the ballroom scene. And it's like, no, you can. And so, you know, I had some people that actually told me, you know, seeing you and knowing you got a job and, you know, da, 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 you know, it make me feel like I can too. And, you know, I either tried to do it and it didn't work or, you know, I realized I could and I did. Right. Um, and so that's the example that I always tried to set. And, you know, most of my gay kids were, you know, black gay men, right? Got black gay boys at the time. And, and, you know, some of them were very young, like when I was still in college and some of them were still in high school. And it was like letting them know that you can get good grades. You know, you can, you can have a good time. You can still graduate from high school. You can go to college. You can do all these things because I did it, right? And at the time, that was still my experience. You know, like I, they identify with me because they saw in me something that they saw in themselves. And it's like, you can do this. I'm in school. I'm in college. I'm doing, I'm going to graduate, you know? And so it gave them the belief and the understanding and knowing that they could. And I've had people come back years later, literally after moving to Texas and, and getting in contact with me 10, 15, you know, years later after having me as an example, as a house mother and things of that nature that said, oh my God, thank you so much. You know, because the example that you set really let me know that I could do certain things and I graduated, you know, got my degree and now I'm working in this field or that field. And, you know, me and such and such and such and such, we're literally just talking about you and the example that you set for us and how you would be so proud and mama would be so proud of us, you know, because, you know, you stayed on us and you always talked about education and working and all that. And we all do it good and got jobs working in this field and that field. And I was like, thank you. It was so you know, affirming and so gratifying to know that I was able to have that impact on people even after, you know, being removed from their lives and move on, moving on into other spaces. So, you know, definitely that was, that was what I thought was advocating uh, personally in the beginning and then started to learn more about HIV and its impact and things of that nature and participated in, you know, putting together balls and things like that to help people get tested and helping friends um, in, in Pittsburgh and in Detroit and, and things of that nature, organize and, and put together, um, events around HIV testing and awareness and those types of things. But once I got into the work professionally at Abounding Prosperity in 2019, that for me was, um, the pivotal moment and like the, the life changing moment where, you know, I really educated myself and learned a lot, even about my own community and the impact that HIV had on it and learning, you know, at the time I was 36 years old, that the average life expectancy for, you know, transgender women of color was only 35 years old, right? I was 36 and it was like, wow, I've already literally outlived my life expectancy as a black trans woman. And so that was eye opening for me. And all of those things, you know, made me very passionate 
about doing this work and speaking up for our community. And it was then again, like I said, in 2019, that I understood why it was important for me to be visible and open and have a voice and things of that nature. Because a lot of women who were like me lived in fear, right? We, if you could pass, you did pass because it wasn't because you were ashamed. It was sometimes that's what you needed to do just to be able to survive because coming out sometimes meant losing your job and then your livelihood and everything that you had worked for. You know, sometimes it meant being discriminated against. It meant being attacked. It meant being killed just for, you know, living in your truth, you know, but I no longer had those fears because I faced death in its eyes and I lived and I was still here. And so I had those, you know, no more fears of, of dying or anything like that after an experience that I dealt with in St. Louis before moving. Um, and so, I was, I was, you know, open and, and I was proud and I was happy to speak up on behalf of my community. And, and it's, it's honestly opened a lot of doors for me. Um, I remember one of my friends told me when you start living in your truth and walking in your purpose, you know, uh, so many things happen and so many doors open and, you know, your, your life really changes. And I will say that I've had a life a lot of life changing moments since I started to kind of walk in my purpose and live in my truth. Let me talk a little bit about that emotional journey. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of go back there. Uh, first, I want to say, you know, one of the great things that I love about you and the example that you set is it's not that you just got a job, you're also thriving. Yeah. You know, and I, and I see that in you every day. And you know, I mean, the first time I met you, I was just like, okay, I need to get in a room with this person. <laughs> I need to just teach me. Let me just soak it all in because there's so much there. But I want to go back, especially with some of the dialogue that's going on right now about trans people, is understanding the emotionality there. You, mm -hmm. you mentioned some of the fear. Um, I'm curious about some of the emotional distress as you were learning about yourself and, and figuring out these spaces. Like, what was that experience like for you? What were you going through before you came to a place of, of accepting self and moving forward? Well, let me say, first of all, I would not be where I was if it were not for my mother. That support for me meant everything. And I don't think that I would be where I am being as successful as I am and um, being in a place where I'm able to speak and live and thrive and all of those things if it were not for the support of my mother. Um, again, I'm a 40 year old black transgender woman. I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. I have a full-time job. I serve on boards. You know, I volunteer, I do public speaking, all of these different things. I would not be able to do all of those things if it were not for my mother. And I'm saying that for the parents that are out there that are listening to understand how important that support is, whether you agree with what your children's, you know, children do, whether you agree or like um, you know, what they do or, or how they are and, and, and how God made them, you know, all of those things, that support still means everything. And I remember my mother asking me if I was gay and, and if I was, you know, homosexual, I'll say at the age of I think 16 or 17, before I was able to really say it to her, right. Asking me and having a conversation. And I was like, 
no, you're not hurried up and denied. Deny, 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 right? And she was like, well, you know, I can just notice things are going on with you and, you know, you're starting to lash out. And, you know, I mean, everyone in the family used to love you and you were everybody's favorite and favorite nephew and all these things. And, you know, now people can barely stand to be in a room with you because you're just so nasty. And it's like, you know, you just don't like people. You treat people so nasty. And it was because I didn't like having to hide who I was around these people and feeling like, they didn't accept me for who I really was. And so I didn't like them. I didn't like to be around them. I didn't want to be around family. Don't talk to me. I don't want to be around these people. I didn't like them because I knew that they probably would not like who I really was. And so why love and like people that I feel like aren't truly liking or loving me if they knew that I was gay, right? And you know, she and I didn't tell her that, but that's how I felt. That's why I was lashing out and acting the way that I was because I didn't feel that I could live in my truth. And she said, you know, I mean, I know that you have homosexual tendencies, you know, but you may not just be homosexual, but I know that you do have homosexual tendencies, but if you are homosexual, it's okay. And I'm still going to love you and your family's still going to love you. And, you know, you should be proud of it. You shouldn't hide it. You know, it's okay. And I was like, what? But I was not ready. I was not ready. And so I still denied. Um, and I didn't actually, you know, disclose and, and come out with that until um, I was a sophomore in college, right? On my way home from like Christmas break on, on the phone with her. I felt ready at that moment. At that time, I felt ready to tell her, yes, I'm gay. Right. Because again, that's what I thought I was, but that's all I was willing to disclose. Not that I thought that I was something else. Right. I didn't want to go that far because I didn't know what that reaction would be like. But within two years, she found out. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, but my mother, um, was a, a very significant part of, you know, me accepting myself and living in my truth and walking in my truth and my transition and all of those things. And I am forever grateful and indebted because of it. And I'm alive today because of her, right? I'm thriving, not just surviving, I'm thriving because of her. And if it weren't for that support of her, my family wouldn't have supported me. But because again, you know, where, where the head goes, the body follows, um, because my mother was the head and she's the oldest grandchild and, you know, first cousin and all of those things. And a lot of people loved her and respected her because she supported me and they saw that they supported me and still loved me and didn't turn their backs on me, um, in the family. And then because I continue to achieve and excel in everything that I did, you know, even those who are a little apprehensive in the beginning, who may not have been as accepting and understanding and all of those things, because they saw all of the amazing things that I was still doing in the life that I was living and what they consider to be the right way, right? Having a job and working and, you know, graduating with my degree and my master's degree and, you know, still continuing to excel and work and do all of these amazing things and then getting into advocacy work um, and having the impact that I was having, those family members started to realize, okay, you know, and, and now they love me just as much. And some of those same cousins reach out to me and say, hey, cuz, you know, I have a coworker 
who is, you know, uh, transitioning or, you know, I have someone that I know who is transitioning and came out and can I point them your way? Can I give them your number? You know, because now I'm a resource even for my family members who at one point in time didn't agree or like, or whatever, you know, uh, me living in my truth and, and being who I am. Now they look at me as a resource and they're proud of me and they reach out to me and tell me that they love me and they're proud of me and all of these things. And so I think that people seeing and understanding that all of the misconceptions that they, you know, have been, uh, believing and all of the untruths and the myths that they thought about what it meant to be trans and what it looked like and what trans people lived like and what LGBTQ people did and how they lived and all of those things. They saw that those things were not true because we're not a monolith. It opened their eyes and they said, I can still love you. Mm. It's okay. You, you're not, you're not unholy or you're not worth not loving or you're not a disgrace or you're not all of these things that they thought that I would be because they were able to see because of social media and Facebook and things like that, that, you know, you're still doing great things and hell you're doing better than some of my kids who <laughs> aren't trans or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I think that that opened a lot of people's eyes. And I think that that's the reason it's so easy for people to be able to um, accept and understand someone like me, but that same understanding and acceptance that you have for me, you should have for all of us because the difference between me and a lot of other trans people is I had that support. I still have my mother. I still have my family and many others don't. And because of that, that's the reason that they can't make it to where I am because they lose that family support. They lose the mother and father support. They lose that intricate and very important resource that people need. And so they go down this path of feeling unloved and, you know, you may have chosen family but there's only so much sometimes that your chosen family is going to do or be able to help you luckily for me i had both so you know that's what helped me get through a lot of the emotional um you know times that i had and and just the emotional stress sometimes that i had to deal with and all of those emotional struggles and battles was my mother and my family and then also my chosen family my gay kids and you know my gay mother and father and all of those different things that's what helped me make it and be where i am Tell me a little bit with that in mind of the advocacy work that you're doing, because, you know, studies have shown over and over again that that community, that sense of community is huge. And unfortunately, I think in our queer community in general, we have left out people. And so especially here in Dallas, I think a lot of times you may see where we talk about the gay community. And again, you mentioned that monolith idea, even politically, I think that's part of the strategy. If they can make us all a monolith, mm -hmm. then it's easy to cut that one thing down and mm -hmm. not see our individuality. But we do that within our own community, where a lot of the things in our, our Dallas community, shamefully, are focused on white gay men. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole other part of the community out there that maybe is underrepresented or isn't showing up or being seen in like media and different things. So I think that's a lot of where, uh, you know, the, the vision for Abounding Prosperity came in, the vision for Dallas Southern Pride, this idea that says, hey, no, we have a space too. Mm -hmm. and, and from what I understand, that's a lot of your advocacy work of saying, hey, I'm going to help the part of community that I was a part of, mm -hmm. that I see, mm -hmm. and that I can reach out and touch. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, I mean, visibility is important. 
Let's start there. And you can't say visibility is important sometimes and not other times. Just like black boys, black girls needed to see a black man become president of the United States to understand that it's really a possibility and something that you can achieve because prior to Barack Obama getting in office, it was a dream, right? It was something that some black kids would write down they want to be president of the United States and a teacher would say, oh, that's not possible. You need to choose something else that that's actually achievable. But now we know that that's achievable. So you can't say on one hand how important visibility is and then on another hand say that, oh, there's something wrong with visibility. And within the LGBT Q plus community, visibility is important. It's important for people to see LGBTQ people in certain spaces and in certain positions to understand that they have the ability to do that as well, that they can do that as well. And like I said before, those who can pass do. And I say that because it's easier and it's safer, right? If you can live a stealth life, you can be trans and no one know that you're trans. You can get by just being a black woman or a black man instead of a black trans woman or black trans man in this world. It's safer and it's easier to do because you don't open yourself up to all of the discrimination, the harassment, the violence, all of those different possibilities that can exist being an open trans person. And so even within our community, many people don't see those positive examples of black gay people or black lesbian people or black trans people. They don't see that. And so they don't understand the possibilities that even they have. And so that's why I feel like visibility is important and to be in certain spaces so that people can see those examples, right? If you are a small black child growing up in an urban neighborhood and all you see around you are people on the streets and gangsters or different things like that, then sometimes that's all you know that you can be. If all you see are professional athletes, then sometimes that's all you believe that you can achieve. But when you start to see black doctors, black lawyers, you know, and black professionals, then you understand that those are possibilities as well. And you're like, oh, instead of wanting to be like this person, I want to be like that person, right? Because now you have an example of what that looks like. It's just as important within LGBTQ communities and especially black LGBT communities because you're told again, like you said, from an early age that you're only going to be this or you're only going to be that or you're going to end up like this or you can't do this or you ain't going to do that. And so having a visible example of something that you can achieve and something that you can be that's outside of what you were told you could be is eye-opening for some people. It's very important. And again, that changes people's trajectory in life and changes, you know, what they see themselves doing and how they're going to get there and, and what road they need to take in order to be able to do it. So for me, it is very important to be that example and be in the community for other black LGBTQ people, especially those who come from a place of less privilege, which many of us do because I didn't have all the privileges, but the biggest privilege that I did have was the family and the mother support that I did have. That was my biggest privilege in life. And that was the difference for me making it to where I am today and not being here at all or not being in this place that I am in life. And so I try to be that support for a lot of other people, that resource, whether they just need some affirmations, whether they need some advice, whether they need information as far as resources are concerned, whether they just need some love, right? Sometimes it might be a few dollars. If I have it, I'm going to give it, you know? And that's why I want to be the first black trans billionaire, because again, representation is important. And if we have our own and I'm able to actually give back instead of having to rely and ask other people for money, 
right? Then I have the power and the ability to help change my community even more because I can donate hundreds of million dollars to people instead of being, you know, just this regular Joe Schmo like I am right now, <laughs> trying to give out my last, you know, and not having as much to give. If I had it to give, I could give out a lot more. And that's just a gift and a goal and a dream of mine, something that I'm working towards, but it's because I really want to be able to change our community. And I think that if you look at any community of people, it changes once you have certain people within that position that have resources and have the ability to change that community. Black people are where they are now because of the resources that we have gained. We started to get more black millionaires and billionaires that were able to continue to invest in the black community because that's their identity. That's something that's important to them and they want to help uplift other community members. You know, same thing with Jewish people who went through a lot of hard times, you know, within, within this world and within our lifetime, you know, the same with the LGBTQ community. A lot of white, cis, gay people and lesbian people, they're in a lot more positions of power. They have a lot more resources. They're making a lot of money. They can give back and start to make changes in their community to uplift their community members, which is why they have the rights and the privileges that many of them have, especially here in Dallas. And we haven't gotten there yet as black LGBTQ people. Kirk Myers definitely was one of those people and did a lot to invest back into the community, starting a bounty prosperity, starting Dallas Southern Pride to be that example, to help also infiltrate resources and money into the community and help uplift the community. And unfortunately we've lost him, but I'm really hoping that there are a lot of other people who can step into those spaces. But even within this black LGBTQ space, it's still primarily black gay men and in, in black lesbian women, you still don't have that same privilege for black trans people. And, and that's what we need, you know, black trans people that are able to get those resources and get to those positions and those levels in life where they can start prioritizing other black trans people and pumping resources into our needs because they're very unique and very different and, and start helping uplift our community more and be more examples of things that we can do and start spearheading and implementing certain things within our community as well, because there is a little bit of difference. You know, there is. Can I ask the how, like, how do we do that? I know that's a loaded question and I know a lot of the work you're doing is probably moving towards that. So how do we, what do we need to do? How can we support that vision? Well, one is just starting with basic things like providing jobs, you know, helping with basic life needs, um, housing support, education support, you know, support services. Because again, one of the things that many, especially LGBTQ uh, black people lose out on is that family support. Right. Mm -hmm. Having that support, getting kicked out of the house at 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, depending on, you know, when you come out or when your parents start to understand or realize that you are gay or lesbian or trans or bisexual or whatever and putting you out of the house. Sometimes you haven't even had the opportunity to finish school and graduate with your degree. And now you're already forced out into the street to really carve your own path and figure things out on your own. And at that age, what resources do you have that are really worth someone paying you something for or providing you housing or clothing you or feeding you or those things? It's just your body. And that's how so many people end up in survival work. It's surviving work because that's what they have to do to survive. Because what information do you have? What skill have you developed at that age to be able to go and get a job that's going to sustain you for life? You don't. The only thing that you have oftentimes is your innocence, 
your body, your sexuality, those things. And that's what people take advantage of. That's what they prey on. And, and that's ultimately all you have in order to make it and to get by. And that's why HIV rates are so high within the community. That's why, you know, mortality rate and things of that nature is so high because you have to put yourself in, in certain situations that ideally you wouldn't be in if you still had that support of your family. And so that support, supportive services is ultimately where it starts. And then providing resources, being very intentional and opportunities and providing opportunities to people within the community as well. Understanding the equity that has to be in place first, right? Not equality because that's equal, but equity is filling in those divots and gaps. If you're building a brand new house before you can start to build, you have to level the foundation, right? You have to level it out before you can successfully start to build on that foundation. And it's the same thing. They may have a lot of divots, Compared to, you know, some of those hills that exist on that foundation, LGBTQ members are those divots that you have to fill in first to get up to where the, the, the foundation is leveled to level it all out before you can start to build. And so that's oftentimes what's needed is that equity, that dirt to fill in that gap, to fill in that hole, you know, that exists because of the discrimination and, you know, the, the transphobia and homophobia and all of those things and the lack of resources that you've already had, you have to be put up to a certain level. Those gaps have to be filled in first before you can start anywhere else. I feel like we've gone to the church of Naomi Green today. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited because it's like every time I've said this before, every time I'm in a room with you, I, I, I feel inspired. I feel motivated. And I know that this podcast could go on easily another three hours today. <laughs> Uh, but for sake of time, I'm going to kind of kind of wind this down a little bit here. There's so many powerful things that you've said today, and, and I hope that we get a chance to have you back to continue this conversation. Um, with that being said, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing currently, how people can get involved, and where people can find you. Well, right now, a lot of the work that I'm doing is serving in capacities to help ensure that black and brown LGBTQ people receive resources that are needed. So I serve on the board for Black Ladies in Public Health, um, and we are an organization and network of over 16,000 black women serving in various uh, fields in, in the public health sector. And we do a lot of work, especially around uh, trans women, uh, as well as cisgender black uh, women to provide resources and things of that nature to to get grants and to make a difference and an impact in the community. Um, and so I'm very proud of the work we do there. Um, I actually have one of my mentees here that's a part of one of the programs that we're doing on HBCU campuses to um, help spread and, and provide resources and awareness surrounding HIV at HBCUs, especially among black women, both cis and trans, because you know we are the leading number for new HIV infections, black women are. And so that's a program that we're doing. Um, I'm on the board for Texas Pride Impact Funds, where Texas is leading community LGBTQ foundation focused on LGBTQ issues, and we provide funding and resources to other um, small organizations around the state focused on LGBTQ issues. And so I serve on the Grants Action Committee there, helping make sure that there is equity and equality in places as far as how funding is being allocated and resourced and things of that nature, and make sure that we're prioritizing certain initiatives and, and certain issues, um, you know, that exists within, you know, black and brown communities. 
Um, and then I'm also on the Ryan White Planning Council, I'm the vice chair, and also the vice chair of the allocations committee. And again, making sure that when we look at allocating funds to various service categories and things of that nature, um, there is a presence of black trans people that's at the table to make sure that our issues are understood um, and, and that service categories are being allocated properly that you know fit our needs. As far as um, education, I do a lot of public speaking, you know, universities, panels, um, conferences, and things of that nature to help just continue to spread awareness uh, around our issues, around LGBTQ issues, period, around black and brown issues, around black trans women issues, and just around black trans people's issues, period. Um, also, just helping provide employment resources and things of that nature. So I got some stuff coming down the pipeline that I'm working on with helping provide employment resources for uh, black and brown trans women and trans men as far as where you can find me social media my handle is at nay to the that's n as in nancy a y the number two t is in tom h e nay to the facebook instagram linkedin twitter snapchat that is my facebook uh, that is my social media handle so you can find me in all of those places at nay to the okay one last question, and especially when you're talking about all this work that you're doing. Right now, currently, and, and our listeners know this, we're, we're based in Dallas, Texas. Texas can sometimes be a hostile state mm -hmm. to some of these things we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. What do we do about that? Like, again, another loaded question, but like with the work that you're doing, do you see hope for this state? Do you feel like, you know, I know a lot of people go, I, I'm giving up and I'm just moving. But I want to be on the front lines to help push back and to battle, you know, some of these uh, le this legislation and this attitude and these cultural norms that, that seem to be part of this Texas zeitgeist, in a sense. Mm -hmm. How do we push back? What do we do in the spaces that you're in? What's the fight look like? So, first of all, the response to a lot of this is what keeps me going. Um, seeing the community response, seeing the response from allies. Um, and, and the fight that people have and the care that people have in this state. That's why I'm not just willing to pack up and leave because I understand that there are so many people that don't like and don't believe a lot of the things that are happening. The first thing is registering to vote and using your voice by voting and making sure that people who represent these issues, these policies, these beliefs, and, and these laws that are trying to be passed or being passed are not back in office. Um, the second thing I would say is be as best an ally as you can. Speak up, right? Show up, speak up. If you see something, say something. Um, if you hear something, correct people. If you know that it's not right, if you know that it's not wrong, don't always leave it up to trans people and LGBTQ people to be the ones to have to speak up and speak out against certain issues. Show up in spaces as well and be supportive. Show that you support LGBTQ people because there's strength in numbers and the more allies that we have and the more community members that we have that show up and that speak out, um, the stronger our voice is going to be. And then contact your local uh, legislation, contact your city officials, contact your state reps, your senators officials and things of that nature, your, your um, Texas officials at the federal government, let them know that you don't agree with a lot of these things, speak up and speak out against a lot of the injustices that you see. And again, the more people that we have that show up, 
the louder our voice is going to be and the louder our cry is going to be. And the more that state is going to realize the things that they're doing are not liked by a majority of Texans. And I do believe that we have the ability to change, especially with a lot of the newer people coming to this, um, the state. And then also with a lot of the younger Gen Zers that are now coming into the voting ages. They don't like a lot of these things. They like more diversity and inclusion and equity and equality and all of those things. And so with a lot of them now coming into the age to be able to start voting, I think that we'll start to see a little bit more of a shift and a change because they're a lot more open, understanding, and uh, equitable. Thank you so much for being with us today. You are incredible. Uh, not only am I a huge fan, I'm also very honored to be called your friend. Thank you. And it's been so amazing. Like I said, I know we could go on and on and on, and I could sit yes. here and listen forever. <laughs> but I want to respect your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming in. Any last words before we go? No. Again, just be an ally, show up, show out, and just love people for who they are. Thank you for being on the show. We have had a wonderful time. I hope everyone out there has been listening and tuning into these conversations. They're so important. Uh, continue to share, you know, follow us on social media at Falling Out LGBTQ Pod. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Falling LGBTQ. Just see what we're doing out there. Um, I'm just in awe of the conversations we're thank having you, with Brian. people. And thank you so much again.